Hi, uh, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of From Poverty to Power uh, blogs and uh, posts. Um, started off the uh, week with the traditional links I light, um, some of the more serious ones rather than the sort of silly Greta Thunberg memes and that kind of stuff. A really interesting piece by Gems George Alakis at IDS on networks and Ebola. He particularly looked at the Ebola response and uh, identified a bunch of people, foreigners, who were coming in working on the Ebola response and used social network analysis to see who was talking to whom. And what he found, unsurprisingly, I suppose, was some massive silos uh, where there were a group of people who, are, who he calls biomedical, so, um, the, the medics dealing with the response, the social scientists and the humanitarians and government officials, and very few people spanning the um, all three groups. So he actually found he got down to six nodal individuals who actually talked between the groups. And uh, he raises just a very interesting point in terms of, are we giving sufficient priority to the kinds of people who, who bridge those gaps, or are we actually just funding uh, people to talk in their own silos? You need a silo in disciplinary terms, in terms of sort of you know, building up the knowledge, but you also need these people who can cross over between them. So really interesting uh, a bit of work there from, from, from him. Another interesting link was uh, a paper by the Centre for Global Development um, looking at UK research funding. I mean, the UK actually puts a lot of funding into development-related research, hundreds of millions of pounds a year. And, um, and in some ways, it's a bit of an anomaly. For example, a, a very large amount of it goes to UK institutions when the UK government has said that it has untied aid. So when it comes to widgets, you know, uh, uh, DFID and other uh, aid agencies are not supposed to give any priority to UK widget producers compared to other widget producers because that actually reduces the efficiency and the value for money. That logic doesn't seem to be applied to research. And so uh, CGD is challenging that and saying we need to uh, untie uh, research funding, we need to embed it more clearly in governments and, for example, listen to what answers uh, developing country governments and other partners actually want rather than have the uh, agenda defined by researchers when it can become a very self-referring group of people. Um, last one I'd pick out from the list, there are plenty of others, but there is a phenomenon by the name of Dave Evans. I don't know how he does it, but he he's turned, become, uh, has developed a specialism in summarizing ridiculous numbers of academic papers from conferences. In this latest example, he summarizes 150 economics papers uh, with a sort of one-line summary and a link to the actual paper. It's incredibly useful for annotated um, uh, function. How does he do it? I have no idea. Does he actually read all those papers? Is he just really good at getting an abstract and boiling it down? It's a huge public service anyway. And everybody just totally loves him uh, on, on, on Twitter. That's links I liked. And then we had uh, uh, the next post uh, on this week was Who is an Expert by Farida Benner of uh, IRC. Really interesting, God, provoked a lot of comments, a lot of uh, discussion uh, on social media. So she is head of policy and advocacy at a large international NGO, IRC. And she has noticed over the years, she's been working in this business for about 20 years, noticed how expertise officially seems to belong to people who are white, who've been to northern academic institutions and acquired lots of degrees and initials. Uh, and she questions the whole idea of whether that is the only kind of expertise that matters. Of course, the answer is no, it isn't. 
Um, she's actually done something about it in that she set up a, a, a blog called Kalisa, which I've just put onto my RSS feed, um, which specifically aims, a bit like our PowerShifts program, specifically aims at having pieces by uh, thinkers and activists in the global south. Uh, Farida identifies three barriers to uh, diversifying and expanding our understanding of, or our notion of what is an expert. Power, language and lack of time, which I thought were three really good ones. Um, it, I won't go into them here, but please um, please go and have a look at the blog. I think it's, it's, it's going to be proved quite a significant post uh, uh, in the future. Um, and then she says, yeah, she points out that even consultation and participation, all those good things are often very top down. So that's why Kalisa actually is not doing surveys of what beneficiaries, terrible word, think about X. They're actually just giving the microphone or the pen to um, individual people to talk about their lives. Really nice. And then the last piece this week, this is a, a sort of fairly light week on the blog, was a piece on open access, because this was open access week every year in October. People who want to make more things open access in terms of information and knowledge uh, come together and have a week of, of agreeing with each other. Um, and this was a piece uh, on open access in books, because I'm, although there is a vigorous discussion on open access in academic journals, which I've been involved in, I'm actually more interested in open access in books because partly just personal, the last two books I've done, From Poverty to Power and How Change Happens, have been open access, which means that from day one you could download them for free. And the question is, does that destroy the business model of publishers or not? And I got together the, uh, the stats from Oxford University Press who published it and from Oxfam for the first three years and it was really interesting. So for the first two years there's a kind of qualified typical book trajectory. You, you sell a lot of books in the first two years and then it tails off. Um, at the same time we had an increasing number of downloads of the PDFs, for, uh, which is free, and people reading it on Google Books or other online platforms, which is also free. So much for the first two years. But in the third year it has completely taken off online and completely died in terms of uh, sales of, of hard copies. So you've got this sudden thing where, you know, for, for every one book that is sold, something like 20 or 30 people read it online, the total number of readers, if you add up all the different people who access it by different platforms, doubled over the last year, which is really unusual for a book, which normally you get all your readers in the first few years and then it tails off. So I think there's a really good, strong case, especially for books which are multi-country global books like Books on Development, to really pursue open access. Um, there's a few sort of qualifications. Not all books have that, that sort of sales trajectory. Um, uh, there, there are real uh, uh, business questions for publishers about what they can make free while still um, recouping their costs and yeah, the cost of uh, editing and, and producing the electronic file and all the rest of it. But um, over time, I think we will see more and more books becoming open access and it's going to be fantastic for the development constituency. Uh, for anybody interested in global issues, they will now be able, yeah, they will increasingly be able to access books for free and I think that's a fantastic contribution of the open access movement uh, insofar as they push this along a bit. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Have a great weekend, everybody, and talk to you soon.